we get into the show today, guys, I want to go ahead and promote RedNationNews.com. It is the newsletter that accompanies this podcast. It's where you can find all my premium written work, including my four-part Big Board series. Three parts are already out right now, where I rank the top prospects of the 2022 NBA draft and mock them as to who could be the best fits for the Rockets in particular. In addition to that, you can find my monthly Q&A that I do for subscribers, as well as a premium episode of Renation Hoops every month. So if you're a fan of this show and you want to support it and keep it free moving forward, the best way to do that is subscribing to that newsletter, RenationHoops.com. Thanks, guys. Hope you guys enjoy the show. What's up, guys? We're going to do this podcast. My name is Solomon Ali, at Solomon Ali NBA on Twitter. We are joined today by the great Jonathan Fagan, the Houston Chronicle, at Jonathan underscore Fagan on Twitter. And by the way, I didn't know this until you posted an episode after the draft. You and Danielle Lerner have your own podcast. It's actually a must-subscribe for Rockets fans. Jonathan, how you been? I'm great, thanks. Thanks for mentioning that. Yeah, we did it throughout the season. It's the Texas Sports Nation podcast, so... Lots of different ones, and obviously we do the Rockets one, and uh, most Tuesdays. We did not do one last Tuesday, kind of cutting back a little now. But, yeah, most Tuesdays uh, on the Chronicle website, you can go find that, and we talk Rockets. For sure, you have to go listen to that podcast. So, as a quick disclaimer, I I texted you this week about doing the show, and I had no idea that you had already done a podcast with a friend of the show, Dave Hardesty, a.k.a. Clutch Fans. So I want to apologize right off the bat uh, to you and the listeners if I happen to repeat a question that David already asked you. Like, I didn't listen to the show when I found out you were going to be on it because I didn't want to be influenced by it. Like, it's a dumb rule I've employed, like, for all, like, my friends and colleagues. Like, if they've written something on a similar subject, I don't read the article until I've, I've written my own. That's because I just don't want to be influenced by it. And I want my own thoughts and not, I don't want to accidentally regurgitate something or re- rebuttal someone else's argument. So I'm applying that same rule here. I haven't listened to that podcast episode yet. I have it bookmarked and I'll listen to it once we're finished recording. But the bottom line is you may or may, might not hear uh, some repeat questions, Jonathan. I have no idea, but I want to apologize ahead of time for that. Whatever you want to do, but do you want me to say, that's a new one. No, nope, that one, we cut, or we'll just fly by as we go and uh, I think we just do it you know and uh, wherever it goes it goes after, maybe afterwards is new yeah yeah that would be interesting you can just grade me as to who did better so let's start here uh, the lottery was 11 days ago you were in attendance uh, in Chicago uh, for the actual lottery, not the televised version, the one where they're actually picking the number combinations out. I want to know everything, man. Like, did the team representatives converse with each other? Who did the Rockets send out there? Was there food? If there was food, what kind of food? Could you tell if they were <laughs> nervous? Were you nervous? Did did you actually? Did they actually use ping pong balls? Like, was this machine elaborate? Were you followed around by armed security guards and sunglasses? Like, I want to know as much as you can tell me because I think this is arguably the dumbest but most consequential thing the NBA does every year. Well, the way it works is that there's a limited number. This year there were eight media observers that are allowed in the room. Uh, when you gather up in the media workroom and they take you down there and you turn in all of your electric electronic devices, your laptop, which I didn't bring, I left in the workroom, but your cell phone, your watch, I, I had a recorder in my pocket, which can't do anything but record. Uh, 
a digital recorder, ah, just to play it safe, here, turn that into, and they take all that. And you go in, and uh, there are representatives from each team, ranging from front office and the business side, such as the Rockets' general counsel, Clay Allen, who did it last year and this year, uh, two general managers, Tommy Shepard from the Wizards and Sam Presti from the Thunder, uh, media relations director, uh, I don't know if that's his exact title, but Joel Glass from the Magic. And we all just mill around and talk for about a half an hour, or maybe not quite that long. There is a, a spread. Nobody ate anything before. Sandwich, I, I'm not exactly sure, but I think it was salads and sandwiches. Um, Wait, so it was there to eat, but they chose not to eat it? Yeah, nobody had any until after. <laughs> um, yeah, it makes sense. And then uh, they eventually they say, okay, everybody take your seats and Everybody has an assigned seat, and the media were off on the left. And someone from the NBA goes through the procedures. And it's, there's a ton of formality um, just to make sure everything is consistent. And I'll get to an example of that in a second. And then someone from the NBA starts it. And there is a pop, there's somebody from Erston Young who brings in the ping pong balls. And they are loaded one by one in. Uh, they come in a, a, a locked case, like an attache case. Very get smart or <laughs> seeming. And uh, they put them in the popcorn popper machine. It's for ping pong balls, though. In fact, Daniel Lerner did a story about the company that makes the ping pong balls for the lottery and how they have to be uh, exactly specific specifications to, to use for the lottery. And they each have a number on them. And the teams are all given a, a list of the 1,001 possible combinations. Uh, Is this like an Excel numbers. document? It's like three pages of, you know, numbers. And it says Houston for the, at the top and all of their numbers. So, for example, a four ping pong ball combination could, and I could look up what it was. And in my story, I put what the exact one was. But the numbers could come out 4, 13, 29, 6. And you look to see if you have those four numbers or who does. The thing is so controlled. They're so careful. They got the guy from the legal department in the front, and he's the guy who pulls the ping pong balls out. You have another guy from the NBA legal department in the back of the room facing away. So all he can see is a wall and I guess the sandwiches and stuff, and his stopwatch, and he stares at the stopwatch. And every 20 seconds, he raises a hand, and the guy in the front of the room pulls another ping-pong ball out. While this is going on, and really, from the moment everybody sits down, it is morgue quiet. I mean, no one it makes a sound. It is, and it really makes it intense. Uh, you know, the, the silence of it, it really feels very dramatic. Uh, and he calls out the numbers one by one, and everybody, including the media, looks at your three pages of numbers. There's a thousand and one combinations. When the four numbers came out with the magic holding the correct four numbers, the last number was six, I remember, and Joel Glass from the magic didn't see the ping pong ball real clearly 
And so Clay Allen from the Rockets, who was sitting right to his right, leaned over and turned to him and said, I think that's you. And then shook, stuck a hand out and shook it. And, and then there's another guy from the NBA who's got the big board of all the combinations. And he says, you know, Orlando Magic. And then there's a woman on the other side of the room who's writing it on a, a large poster board, the, the four numbers and the team. And so he's got it, doesn't really react. He smiled. That was about it. And shook Clay's hand. And then they do it again. Same thing. Every 20 seconds, a hand goes up and a ball comes out and he calls out the number and everybody looks at their page. Uh, this time, it's, uh, I, this time I saw it right away. The first time I was still looking at the numbers when the NBA guy found it and said, Orlando Magic, this time I knew right away, uh, Oklahoma City Thunder. And I looked at Sam Presti and he didn't, he made no reaction of any kind. He didn't even pick up his head. You know, he just looked down and I asked him later, wow, are you that much of a poker face? And he said, yeah, I kind of am. But actually, I was just looking. I was still trying to find my numbers. <laughs> so I was still yeah, double checking to see if we won. The, the way you're describing this sheet with the number combinations, it sounds really complicated or like hard to find like a thousand number combinations like in real time as they're saying it out. Like I, I'd imagine, it, it, there, is there some sort of organization so you can find it very quickly or is it like you literally have to go through the list? You literally have to go through the list, but everybody's looking at their own. So you're not looking at a thousand and one and okay. you got 20 seconds to say, do I have four? And you go down there, four, 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 four. There's a four, you know, and then you wait and you hope just like any other Powerball. And again, the Rockets, and this was in my story that night, they had the first three numbers, you know, the, so Clay is thinking, we got it. We're number, we have a chance at one, one number to go. And the Rockets didn't have the six on the last ping pong ball. So, like, if the six came out in the first ball, right away, you know, all right, we don't have it. And uh, But now the Rockets had the first three. So now they've done two of them, and it's still. And now there's even more tension because now everybody wants to be in the top three this year. The Rockets certainly wanted to be in, absolutely wanted to be in the top three. And so now, and Clay's feeling the pressure. You know, I talked to him after, and he's really feeling it, even though there's absolutely nothing he or anyone else can do you still, we got to get it. And it comes up the Rockets numbers and he knew right away and Joel Glass next to him knew right away and turned and shook his hand. And so the Rockets got the third pick that way. And then they did it again and put this in the story, just like the Yao Ming draft when the Rockets got the first four ping pong balls, then the right to draft Yao Ming. When they did it again, four ping pong balls come out and the Rockets had those four, too. So they had to say, all right, do it again. And, you know, they put the ping pong balls back and tried again so they could find out who would go fourth. And so that, that's how it goes. When it's over, now you got about a half an hour. And we all just mill around, a lot of talking. And I do a few interviews. You know, I interviewed Sam Presti and Clay about how he felt, Joel Glass, uh, I can't remember. There was a couple more interviews I did. And so you do a few quick interviews, and you can't, no recorder. So you have to go back to old school, you know, notebook and pen. And, and that's the other thing, the whole thing you're doing, notebook and pen. 
It's like, well, I'm glad I spent, what, 30 years without recorders. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't know what to do. I wouldn't know what to do yeah. in this situation without without any sort of recording device. I could not remember. I could not write that fast. I'd be, I, my handwriting would be too bad. It'd just be too bad. Yeah, my handwriting's really comically bad, uh, but um, I have shorthand, you know, developed 40 years ago or whatever it is. And so you do the interviews and you do scribble in your notebook. And I, I used old school reporter notebook like I did all those years. Um, there's another part of it that I was going to tell you, and I, I can't recall what it is, but you're all just sort of visiting, you know, you ask what good luck charms did you bring? And I'm sure you probably saw, I mentioned this in several stories, but Clay, when he, his first year with the Rockets, uh, he was an account executive, I think, or, or assistant, something like that. He's general counsel now, but uh, a guy who grew up in Houston, a huge Rocket fan, close enough to Compact Center that he and his brother walked to the games his first year was the year they retired Akeem Olajuwon's number 34. After the ceremony, he was among the people helping to put things away. And Rudy T's notes were left on the podium. So he grabbed them. And he's had them all these years. His brother actually had them and framed them. So each of the last two years, he took them out of the frame and had them in his pocket. That was his good luck charm. And I uh, imagine if the Rockets are in the lottery again next year, uh, he'll bring them again. He'll br- he'd, he'd rather let the Rudy T notes, which are really cool looking, you know, it, it's just his handwritten notes from his speech on the back of a play sheet where you draw plays up, you know, which I guess Rudy has a thousand pages of left. And so he kept them and brought them for good luck. And that was the other thing I was going to mention. I tried to keep track of how many times I either reached into my pocket for my phone or looked for my watch that were not there. And I lost track. It was the watch more than the phone. Because there's times you want to take a picture. You want to take a picture of the handwritten board with the numbers, you know, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And so you reach for your phone. Oh, man, my phone is locked away outside the door. And, yes, there is somebody from NBA security at the door not that he had anything to do. Nobody tried to break their way out. When I did it to Yao Ming year, that's the only other time I've been in the room, uh, you could go to the bathroom and NBA security would escort you to the bathroom and stand behind you. Oh, so there is security. Oh, yeah. Now, now once you're in there, you're, you're in there for good. You're not coming out until the show is over. No bathroom breaks. Wow. No, no, nothing. There's no way you could communicate. You couldn't, and you know, I guess if you were the type who wanted to write it down and slide it under the door, now nah, there's security at the door. You can't, you'd never get away with it. And so you, you're staying in that room and you a half an hour. It's pretty fun sort of mingling and talking about something that everybody was interested in. Uh, and you do that and then the show starts. And everybody kind of goes back to roughly their seats. You don't have to be in exactly the seat, but pretty much everybody goes and we watch the show. And the cool thing is you know what the result will be, so you know whose reaction you want to watch on the show. You know, I put in my story about Rafael with no reaction. Um, I called him Rafael Stonefaced because he had no reaction. And I told him that I did that. Uh, just no reaction at all. And when it's time, the show's over, the door opens and you go and you quick as fast as you can, you get your phone and your 
in my case, recorder, your smartwatch, and you run down to the ballroom at the end of the hall where the show was done, and there's like a thousand people, and I'm scrambling around and trying to find Rafael so I could talk to him, and uh, I didn't find him until about 10 minutes later in the hallway waiting for his lift, and I interviewed him there, and I talked to an agent or two and a couple general managers and that kind of thing while I was scrambling around, but it, it's a fun night. It's 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 a really weird thing to have that much tension involved with people who can do nothing to impact the results. I guess it's like a GM watching the game being played. And, you know, the old story about Jerry West being so, actually Daryl Morey, same way, couldn't even stand to watch. And, you know, Daryl would always go up to the practice court and pace. You know, sometimes he'd sit in his seat, but a lot of times he would just go to the toilet and the practice court. Well, that's what it's like, except you can't leave. And you can't help your team or your interest in any way, but you feel tension anyway. Yeah, I mean, I I'd imagine it's 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 nerve wracking. It's it's got to be. I mean, this is like like I mentioned, it's a I think I believe it's a dumb event, but it is so consequential to so many teams. And like you, these these executives, like you know, they spend hours and and weeks and months uh, plant team, you know, planning their team and carefully constructing uh, how they want to approach the off season and the draft and free agency and like they want to, you know, they set their cap space up a certain way. And at the end of the day, they're beholden to these ping pong ball combinations, which is just crazy. Like these these executives, best of the best in their field, are just having to watch their fates being decided by uh, this. Uh, I don't even know what, what kind of machine. It's a popcorn machine. You said it's like it's like it, well, like, it looks like it, but no, it's built for this purpose. But it looks like a right, popcorn yeah. machine. But, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's built it's, for it's, this with a little chute. When he opens the little door. The vacuum causes a ball to slide up the tube to his hand. Well, yeah, it, it, you're, you're right, though. That, and in the Rockets' case, more specifically, you have the worst record in the NBA in consecutive seasons. You're in a draft where you're happy with any of the first three picks. Obviously, you'd like to have control and make your own decision about this is the guy I want most, but... You're going to be happy one, two, or three, and considerably less so at four or five. Even though there's some intriguing guys there, absolutely. That's where the line is. Of, of And really, last year, the Rockets would have been happy at one or two, and, you know, they got two. And so, yeah, it's a big deal that you're so much of everything you've been hoping and planning for a year comes down to fate. Yeah. It is incredible. Um, uh, by the way, as a quick aside, uh, hold on, give me a second. Like, as a quick aside, like, how do you feel about the NBA lottery as in general? Because like the other major American sports leagues aren't doing it, and it seems kind of cruel. Like, it adds an element of randomness to entertainment, uh, but to team building, uh, that randomness is chaos, and it takes away from, in my opinion, the best planned general managers, and more importantly, this is like how the small market teams have historically built their teams, right? Like the Denver's and the Utahs of the world aren't going to land major free agents. That's like what teams like the Lakers are going to do. Oklahoma City is Although they were built without landing great lottery picks either. I mean, neither one of them, you know, relied on picking first, second, third. I I think it's a better thing. And and the other thing, and nobody likes to admit this, especially this time of year, 
but it's random, but so is the lottery, especially nowadays where you're drafting teenagers. So, hey, the best player in the draft, and there's so many of them. Let's just go to the examples you gave. Nikola Jokic is a second-round pick and back-to-back MVP. Giannis Antetokounmpo was two-time MVP. Uh, I believe, if I remember right, was he 15th in the draft? So everybody yeah. acts like the order in which you go is all important. Not at all. And, you know, it's not just picking the right guy. Everybody would have done what most of the teams on the way to Jokic did, which was take somebody else. Or, better example, Antetokounmpo, which was take somebody else. Uh, so it's not like, ah, uh, you screwed up. No, you just can't predict greatness. There, like I was saying the other day that if you look at this year's draft or last year's draft, the chance of the, let's say, top two guys last year being the best player on the best team or top five in an MVP voting is not Very great. It's a, yeah. it's a pretty low percentage chance, but much better than most years. You know, pretty good chance compared to other years that Cade Cunningham or Jalen Green will be that someday, but it's still not a great chance. This year, there's a chance, but it's less. It's more typical. Well, those are the top players. So if you add a little randomness on, on the lottery night, well, there's a ton of randomness anyway. The only difference is one is so obvious and in your face, and the other one no one likes to admit. Yeah, I hear you. I guess my point is like, like Oklahoma City isn't going to get a meeting with LeBron James. Like they just aren't. Like they almost exclusively have to use the draft. And like flattening the lottery odds over the years feels like it hurts those teams the most. Whereas like you know the big market teams or the teams that have historically been very good at landing free agents, this isn't going to hurt them that much because they have that as a fallback option, right? And if anything, like I think the play-in tournament was like more effective at giving teams incentive to win rather than flattening is at giving teams a disincentive to lose because it's not like tanking's gone away like it's it's still alive and well like does that make sense or do i sound crazy right now i don't like, think the tanking is as prevalent as it was uh, but it still exists and, and it just it's inevitable it's the way it is you know and even in other sports like you look at baseball where you're not losing after a certain date you know in order to improve your draft chance, you're losing because, all right, we're out of it. We're going to clean out payroll. And so then there becomes a fire sale of high priced. Well, that's even worse. But I don't know. I, I don't mind the flattened lottery or the concept of a lottery. Um, but I guess I'm also more cynical about the draft in general that, you know, people get all worked up this year over which of the first three are you best taken and my answer to that is, you have no idea. I have an opinion, just like everybody else, but uh, you really don't know. You're just taking your best guess. So enough of that detour. Back to this specific lottery, because I, I, I've been saying for a couple months now that I, I, I kind of believe uh, what, you, what you were just saying there earlier, that this is a three-man draft, and there, there's not really a consensus, number one. Uh, and it sounds like the... Uh, 
that you you said you just said earlier that the Rockets believed the same thing that this was a three man draft and they're happy to be anywhere in that in that range. But did they value any of these particular players above the other? Like, could you get the sense that they favored or that they were tantalized by you know maybe Chet, maybe Jabari, maybe Paolo? Like, could you get the I, sense I don't know that the they? Answer. Well, first of all, I think it is those three, but they haven't told me that. Um, but I believe that to be the case. Rafael is a very disciplined lawyer. He does not say what he doesn't intend to say. You know, he, if he answers something, as, as you've experienced, because you're in all the press conferences with him too, he says what he intends to say, and he doesn't make mistakes on that. Um, I, I've said this to other people. Uh, I, the way I kind of describe it is Daryl Morey is the client that the lawyer says don't talk to the media because the lawyer wants to control everything that is said. Rafael is the lawyer who says it. You know, he, he's very disciplined. And so he has not told me. It's the one way of saying that. I, and he, but he has said, and I think he said this in the press conference, that they've done a lot of work, but they have not gotten together. So let's say uh, Chris Wallace has a really strong opinion. Uh, Rafael doesn't know yet what that opinion is, um, that they're going to do that at another time and get together and compare notes and then make if there's different opinions, make your argument and let's look deeper and you know, all this, this stuff that's part of the process. At the time of the lottery, they hadn't reached that part yet. And so who do the, if the Rockets say it's the same first three and if they have a favorite among those three, I could only guess, but I do not know. And because he insists, he doesn't even know what everybody else thinks yet. Yeah, by the way, yeah, uh, Chris Wallace is an excellent scout. By the way, he, like his scouting background is pretty like, in, in, insane. Like he's he was one of the original. Like I'm gonna put my my scouting out into the public, and I I'm gonna eventually get hired by an NBA team for it. Like he 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 was one of those guys. Uh, and um, yeah, I mean I, I'm sure they're doing their homework right now. I mean I'm sure they've done their homework individually. I'm sure they're collaborating right now, and they're they've likely already have some idea of where they're leaning. It's been 11 days since the lottery. Uh, yeah, yeah, but what they're doing now is they're going from the pro day to pro day. So getting everybody in the room, uh, you know, together. And there's a ton of work to do because they have the 17th pick too. And really, even if they didn't, you evaluate so many people and so few work out at the combine compared to the vast number that you want to have strong information and opinions about they're scrambling they're all going pro day to pro day to pro day i don't think they're huddling up for the more intensive long meetings that come i think it's more get your reports get your information everything um and that's already been going on for months and months and months but when you're in the gyms you're not in the meeting room and they're in the gyms right now yeah well, I was more referring to the top of the draft. Like, I'm sure 17, they have, they're probably not there yet. But like, I think at this point, I would, I would be surprised if if they don't have an idea who they're taking. Is what I'll say. I just, I just think it's like, you know, in in the end, it's Rafael's decision to some degree, a large degree. It's Rafael and Eli's decision, and they probably know how they feel. You know, now other people are expected to weigh in, and from what I've heard is. Rafael likes 
people to challenge opinions. Of course, he won't say what his is, so they won't know their cha- His style is, what do you think, Matt Bullard? You know, what do you think, Ross? You know, and they weigh in. And, but they don't know what he's thinking, so they don't know for sure yet if they're disagreeing or agreeing. But he wants to hear it. He wants arguments made. And so that, I don't think, has happened yet. But he, he likes that. He wants to hear it. I hear you. It's one of those things where, like, they this isn't the first time they've watched these guys, right? Especially the top three guys. The top three guys have been on the national radar for the past three years. Like, they've all been, they were all top recruits going into college, right? They probably have some sort, if they if they haven't decided as a group, at least individually, they have a preference. And it'll be oh, sure. Like I said, I think Rafael knows what Rafael thinks to some degree. Right. Now, he might fight the urge to, reach conclusion, but Rafael has an idea of how Rafael feels. You know, when I talked to him in the hallway that night, the way he worded was, if we take the pick, like he did in the press conference that followed later, and right. he said, nobody believes me when I say that. <laughs> it's kind of funny that he worded it that way. Nobody believes me. And it, again, it goes back to the lawyer training and lawyer discipline, the, always value and consider the fine print. You know, and the fine print is, well, somebody could conceivably make an offer that he would take. Now, the odds are pretty small, but you're not lying. There's, there's a chance. I believe him. And, I believe him. Yeah, I mean, there's always that chance. Uh, and the lawyer side of him will say, you know, always consider every contingency. They, I mean, right now, they're in the process of talking to every team. Uh, trying to see if there are deals there that intrigue them, right, for the number three pick or for the number seventeen pick, right? They're not, they're not beholden to anything yet. And when it comes to draft day, obviously they're still not going to be beholden because they're not going to know the order. They're not going to know which player comes to them, right? They're not, they're they don't have the number one overall pick, so they they can't. We won't even know then what they're they won't even know then what they're going to do, right? They may have deals in place as contingencies. Um, I that's what these teams do, by the way. They don't they don't. Like they're not constructing the the major parts of these deals on draft night. They they've do, they do that in this thirty twenty to thirty day period uh, before the draft, the lead up. They they are constructing these deals now, and when when they see the order on draft night, they can make the phone call and then complete work out whatever minor details. Like they're they're not they're not doing these deals on draft night, right? Like they they they're doing it right now. They're they're being made right now. Just like the trade deadline, where you do the work, you know this team likes these guys off my roster, and this is what I they know what it would take to get them, and I would do it or I wouldn't do it for what they're willing to give for the my guy, and so you just add the draft pick part to the equation, but you know very well what's out there, what you can get or what you can get for what you've got. You know that before the trade deadline, you don't start that day, and it's the same thing on draft night. The only difference is on draft night, you've got five minutes between each pick, and you go into it knowing this is the group of guys I hope slips to me. In the Rockets' case, it's 17. This is the group of guys I hope one of them makes it to 17, and as they start disappearing, do I want to move up? They moved up for Shangun, and 
okay, I, this team, this team, they, they, I can't work a deal with them, but I could with that team maybe. You know, and that, you go in with that kind of strategy. Um, and then sometimes you probably don't have anything. It's like you always hear, yeah, we had some deals, so it didn't quite make it. it. They're not lying. They all have deals that maybe they can do, maybe they can't, but they all have something in their pocket they hope will happen, or not hope will happen, but hope they can pull off if they need it to get the guy they want. Right. Uh, so I'm sure Dave already asked you this, but I'm going to ask it. I'm, I'm going to ask it anyways because I I don't know for sure. Uh, on your personal big board, now, so not your mock draft. What's your ordering right now? Because like this is the way I have it. I have it Chet, I have it Paulo, and I have it Jabari. I think all those guys have reasonable cases to be the number one overall pick. I love Chet and Paulo, and Jabari is just so easy to plug into so many different team constructs, and he's an elite three point shooter, very versatile defensively. So that's my ordering. Uh, what's your personal ordering? Yeah, I mean, I answered it with him partially. He didn't ask for the order, but who would be my number one? And, I, you know, I think, I haven't spent a lot of time worrying about my own opinion. I'm more interested in finding out other people's. But I think I'd say Jabari first. Um, I, I think what he needs to develop to be a foundational, a superstar-type player is more likely to be developed than what the other two need to add. They all need things, right? None of them walks in and is ready to be that. So, you know, in in Jabari's case, you know, to get a really good tight handle, to be able to go get his shot, you know, to to be a guy you have to double team because he can go get his shot and he's got a great shot. I think he's more likely to add that then does Paolo become a great or elite defensive player, which I think Jabari can be. Does Chet Holmgren become a guy you've got to double team, you know, as opposed to just a catch and shoot three, in addition to the defense, which he has a chance to be very special. But you do have some concerns with him being slender, which he will remain. He'll get stronger, but he's going to be a thin guy. I just think Jabari's need is more within reach than the other two to be a superstar at some point to be to if that's what you in other words to reach whatever his ceiling is Uh, i would probably lean that way i have no idea on second or third i I kind of i don't know i i I find palo especially intriguing because he's got such a a versatile offensive game i think his three-point shot is actually going to end up being very good i don't know that he's going to be a 40 percent guy but at 6'10", 255, I think he's going to be a mid-30s guy. And uh, that's pretty darn good considering his handle and his passing and his feel for how to get his shot inside. I, I just find it really intriguing. And I think in terms of team building, maybe he's not a great fit with Shingun in some ways, maybe another – but. Really, really good passing. You can always find use for really, really good passing. It's like great rebounding is the thing that translates most reliably from one level to the next. Well, great rebounding is always good to have. You know, it's never like, boy, that guy rebounds so well. I really wish he didn't. Nah, you never think that. Passing's kind of that way too. Really good. I think he's going to be a really good passing big man. I think that's going to be really good for Jalen Green. when they When teams want to double him, it, to have a big guy like that you can use a, as your release point. Um, 
I, I, I just find him really intriguing. I like Jabari a lot too. Uh, and like I, I think he has a compelling case for number one. Here's what I don't get. So Chet and Paolo get scrutinized mercilessly by like the draft community, right? By polar, like different op, different sides of the community. Chet for his frame, Paolo for his defense. And when the discussion turns to Jabari, there's like a reluctance to acknowledge that he has any weaknesses whatsoever, which I think is like clearly not the case, right? Like for example, I think he's by far the weakest ball handler when we that we go into the that will go into the top five, right? And it's like we put defense and shooting on such a pedestal and I understand why they're valuable but like we put those two skills on such a pedestal over skills like um someone like Paolo possesses like in droves like ball handling fluidity off the bounce scoring in the paint playmaking it's like we we seem to like prioritize those two skills in the modern NBA over those other skills and it those other skills are just kind of cast off I think it's just so strange because it's starting to happening every year and I don't I like Jabari this is not me saying let's go let's go kill Jabari. Let's cr- let's criticize him more. This is me saying if you're being objective about this, like you should be able to nitpick all three of these guys because I don't think I mean unless you disagree, maybe maybe you have Jabari in a tier of his own. I don't think any of these guys stands out. Like it's just too hard. Well, yeah, there's and I think you make some good points, but part of that is also the modern NBA, the value on range shooting and switchability switchability with length you know he he is sort of the the positionless basketball guy of, of the three and i guess you can say the other two can be a four or if there are such things as fours anymore four or a center but just he jabari most likely seems to be the guy who he plays the way everybody's trying to play right now and, or he will um, and so I think that's part of that's a factor to it as well. And the other thing is, is it, it, Chet Holmgren. Oh, sorry, he's unusual. You know his look, the way he's built. Uh, you know, I said at the lottery, me. He looks like his clothes don't fit, even when they do. Uh, you know, he's just so just a different look to the way he's built. And Powell played at Duke, and so you're going to get a lot of automatic uh, criticism or, or critiques. And, uh, uh, you know, evaluations with doubts about you if you go there. And so, because some of it is a big man history and some of it is because a lot of people don't like Duke. So I think those are factors to what you're talking about where they do seem to be judged more harshly, more critically than Jabari does. Yeah, maybe it's a do thing. Uh, I, I do remember Tatum was judged pretty harshly going into the draft, uh, that Markel Fultz draft. Um, and you know maybe it's I, I hadn't thought about it that way, uh, but it it is one of those things where like players like him right like the bucket getters like there's there seems to be like a snobbiness about like those kinds of skills in the modern NBA right like it's like like that kind of skill is somehow beneath you know what Jabari is able to do which I think they're both valuable right they're both valuable in the modern NBA but I think. For some reason, like we, I don't know, I, I, you know, I, I don't want to repeat myself. It's, 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 just, it's just weird. It's just weird. Like the, the conversation around it makes me a little uncomfortable, right? It's just, uh, I, I just think when you look at this draft, if you watch um, all three of them, I think it's one of those things where like, it's so hard to pick one that 
clearly stood above the pack. If you're just looking at the tournament, Paolo did. If you're looking at the regular season, Chet did. If you're looking at the the combination of the two, I think Jabari did pretty well, right? And Jabari did it without any good guard play, I thought. Like, the guard play for Auburn was pretty below average. And, you know, I thought what he was able to do, especially the difficult shots he was hitting, everybody knew he was a shooter. Like, everybody knew Jabari could shoot. He still hit them. He still hit them at a really high clip. Uh, and that's just that having that skill in your back pocket going into the NBA is incredibly valuable in addition to what he can be defensively. So I, I this is not me. I like I like Jabari. Yeah, the word elite, you, you kind of think he's got a really good chance to be an elite shooter, an elite defensive player with lots of switchability. Uh, that's a pretty good start. Right, I, there, there, there's a lot of projection going on though in the in the other areas of his game, right? Like there's like an assumption right. that those other areas will develop. Well, you're talking about teenagers, so you're going to have to project to to a large degree. Um, but what I what I mean is like there's more going on with him. I'm, I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you. This oh, people are projecting with him. I get you that they're projecting with him more than these more others. More graciously uh, or generously than they are with the right. others. Yeah, no question. Yeah, I, I could see that, uh, especially. I, I think Paolo, especially, where like there's knocks on his defense, and I watched him for that, and I could see why uh, he does seem to lack. A, a, he seemed to float a little bit, but you know what? He's a teenager, and you know he also comes with some tools. Where he is a big man who's very quick uh, on his feet defensively, he could be a pretty good switching big man. And bring some size to where he's not going to be just pushed around by the, the remaining really big traditional centers uh, if he gets in those matchups. So you can project well with him as well. Um, that's, I guess that's part of the fun of the draft. Uh, is yes. It's all potential. You know, it's like people who love, love, love college signing day. You know, they like it more than the games themselves in some cases. Or the trade deadline, because it's all about possibilities. It's not about just at the end of the night, one of these two teams is going to lose. It's all about what could be. Hope, I've said this a thousand times, hope is the oxygen of sports. It's just, this is what makes people sports fans, is what could happen, you know? And so that's what the draft is. 100%. So the reporting seems to indicate that Orlando is going to take Jabari, OKC is going to take Chet, and that Paolo will fall to Houston at three. My question to you is, does that intel align, does your intel align with that? Because as well as, as we all know, like Sam Presti is not one to conform to groupthink, nor is he one to ever telegraph his moves ahead of time. Like he, it's always a shock to the NBA when he does anything major, whether that's trading Paul George at 3 a.m. in the morning on a random summer night or taking Josh Giddy in last year's draft. Like he, there's just always so much smoke that ends up being bullshit, and he he'll do something, and it always shocks the system, right? I could easily see him swerving the entire league again and doing something like you know maybe taking Jaden Ivey or something like that right how do you see how do you think this plays out not only with OKC but with this top 3 like do you think that in uh, that ordering that i mentioned earlier is that accurate is that you know is is that kind of contradicting with you what you're what you're hearing well first i totally agree about Sam Presti um you know i've heard that for many years uh, i always i go back to the day of the Russell Westbrook trade a really good source that i had who was you know, executive level guy 
Um, but, you know, outside, he wasn't in the Thunder or Rockets front office. Um, he said, Sam is going to slow walk this one. He, he had to do Paul George quick. He is going to take his time. This one's going to drag out. I didn't write it. And I was happy that I didn't write it. Uh, six hours later, the deal was done. Russell Westbrook to the Rockets. So, so people don't know what, what Sam Presti is thinking is kind of my point. Uh, and so I agree with you that uh, I, he's not going to show his hand. Um, that said, on lottery night, I had several people tell me, you know, it's not such a certain top three like you in the media and we're repeating to each other. It's more uncertain than it's being said out there. By the end of the week in Chicago, I had some of the same people saying, yeah, it's those three. <laughs> so and others kind of felt that way now again it could be the echo chamber where every mock draft almost has them one two three people see it who you know are decision makers they talk to each other it, it, when I left Chicago that was the impression I had it, that's the top three um uh, you know, I don't know. And, you know, we're making this big point about how the Rockets make decisions and they don't know exactly what they're going to do until they do the work. Well, I would think that's true of the Magic and Thunder as well. But uh, I don't know. That's, that's my – I'll put it this way. That's my lock draft, and I've got at least one year in a row getting the first three right. Here's what I'll say. What scares the hell out of me, and, and I put out my tiers, right? I put out my, my tier one and my tier two for the draft, and my tier three and my tier four are going to be coming out this week. What scare, The player that scares the hell out of me more than any other, and the one I was most nervous about leaving out of my tier one was Jaden Smith, Jaden Ivey, because, man, that kid is good. Like He is so good, and he's electric, and he is like so driven like incredibly driven like the leaps he made from high school to college to sophomore year of college are ridiculous and passing up on a guy like that would make me nervous and he is pretty much the only player outside of this top three that I think has a justifiable case to take in that top three but the GM that takes him in the top three if he happens to land there has to have some major job security like yeah, like some major job security. Well, here here's a weird way to look at it then, because I, I agree he's very very interesting and he comes with great tools. As we were talking about with the other guys, his very special athleticism and he plays with a certain fire. Uh, it's a great combination. So the Rockets last year passed on the big man to take up another player with incredible athleticism and work ethic and potential. Does that indicate that's what Rafael likes? That's what he does. So go with his history as a sign of what he might do. Or, well, that's what he did last year. He's not going to do it again. He just drafted a guy who fits the same description. Uh, I don't know the answer to that question. Of course, you know, how could we? He's so early in his time as a GM. But, uh, I, are they going to pass up a big man two years in a row? And I don't, I don't think it was a mistake, and I know he doesn't think it was a mistake. I think he thinks he did exactly the right thing and would do it again 10 out of 10 times. But is he going to again? Uh, all right, let me take another two guard. 
Uh, I liked it last time. Let me take another guy who ideally, they could play together, but ideally plays the exact same position. And I, I think, I actually think Jaden Ivey's like, best path to a superstardom in the NBA lies in playing point guard. Like I, I think, I think that's like, if if he if he hits, I think he hits at point guard. Like, like I think that's that's what I most imagine him in that that kind of role. His instincts aren't as good as maybe like someone like pa- Paolo Banquero. Right? I think he has Banquero actually. I think has better passing instincts. Right? But the way the the steady improvement I saw from his uh, freshman year tape to his sophomore year tape was just so drastic. I mean, he went from a like a a guy you ha- you didn't even go over screens for for a you cannot go under the screen. You can't. You just mm-hmm. you just can't because he he's going to kill you. He's going to kill you both ways. And like that, that it, that's remarkable to go from that kind of player to that kind of player in the span of like a few months basically. The turnover from uh, his freshman year to the sophomore year. It's that's that that drive is just it, it would make me it would make me incredibly nervous and i would obviously these guys are going to do their homework but uh i would be very nervous about penciling in that as a top three uh you know with the bullet but i with that being said that's what i did <laughs> so no, uh yeah. so no i, thought, yeah, I think he's intriguing as well I, I love to watch him play uh he is one of you know, he's as enjoyable or more so to watch play than any of them for those reasons. I don't know if I'd say his best chance at stardom is at point. I, I, I think he's a guy who will be able to be good and really maybe great as a point, um, depending on where he goes and how he's used and how he develops. But kind of like Donovan Mitchell where, yeah, he can step over there or Devin Booker who – you know, for a while there, they were saying, you know, maybe we should use him like James Harden is used as a point. Earl Watson wanted to do that. And he can play, he can do the job there if you need him to, but he's doing pretty well as a two. And I kind of think that's how Jaden Ivey will be as well, where he can play with a great two, he can fill in. If he's the great two, he can fill in as a point, but kind of similar to, uh, to those guys. Before we get to 17th, does Houston trade up or try to acquire another pick in this draft? Like, what is your gut telling you right now? We know that they turned down picks to enter this draft uh, in exchange for Eric Gordon. Are those players going to be available again to move? You know, or you know, even other players like Jay Sean Tate, uh, Christian Wood. Are like, are, are these guys going to be available trade pieces on you know on draft night, uh, or are they just going to are they satisfied with where they are? Well. I think both things can be true is that they can be happy and encouraged, hopeful for where they are. But like I said earlier, if you get that little pool of players that you're really happy to take at 17, if one of them gets to you, if they suddenly start going one after another and you kind of look at your board and think, Oh yeah, this team might take the guy we still want of that group. Then maybe you think, okay, move up. Like they thought there was no way Shangun was getting to them at 23 last year. Um, they, they kind of came to that realization. And so they moved up. So it depends how things fall. I do not think, though, that they want at all to make a move to get a third first-round pick. Um, they have enough trouble playing the five guys who were rookies last year and two more. So you need eight first- and second-year players plus two more who will be in their third year. Uh that's a lot of guys. 
And so uh, I don't think they want to do that. But I think there's always a chance of trying to move up depending on how things play out during the draft. So what's the future with Christian Wood looking like? Because Kelly Eco reported that teams have started displaying interest uh, on the market for Christian Wood. And the Rockets are in position to take one of these bigs, right? So they're going to have Christian Wood, Alperin Shangun, uh, let's just say Paolo Banquero. Obviously, Jay Sean Tate's still there. He plays a big man position. Uh, KJ Martin plays a big man position. So, like, they're going to have this log jam, at, you know, at the big man positions. Uh, is his Usman future Garuba. in Houston? Usman Garuba, right, uh, in the G League, right? And so we and we don't know uh, if he's taken steps to improve and perhaps earn a roster spot uh, with, the, with the main team this year. Like, so with, all, with that being said, like, how is – you know how secure is is Christian Wood's future in Houston right now? Like, I think uh, I would be surprised if by the trade deadline next, you know this this upcoming trade deadline, he's still on the roster. But I would not at all be surprised if he starts the season on the roster. Like, is that your kind of your feel, or do you think there's mm-hmm. a possi- there's a real possibility that he gets moved? No, well, there's a real possibility if you were to that well, way. But sure. right. what's most likely, I would say the same thing you did. That, uh, you know, the, what we kind of have learned, Rafael will set what, in his mind, what he thinks is the right price for an asset, a pick or a player, and he he's, doesn't want to budge if he doesn't have to. And going into the and, season, and he doesn't have price? to. I don't know, but uh, I, I couldn't even, I don't know. What, what does he think he has to get for if he wants to trade Christian Wood or Eric Gordon? Um I, I would guess it's usually a, a future first with as little protection as possible um, because that's kind of what they value and will be of value when um, they start getting into the years that they owe, owe Oklahoma City their pick. Uh, but I, I don't think he's going to feel pressure. And interest in Christian Wood, well, every team can figure out the same things that you and I can and, oh, they're going to probably draft a big guy. they got all these other big guys that need minutes. He's going into the last year of his contract. And maybe I can get him for very little. You know, get your share something before you lose him for nothing. And so this is sort of the, the work you do before trade windows. And the draft weeks, you know, a week before and immediately right after, there, there's a trade window there. And so you want to prepare. Can I get him cheap? What will it take to get him if I want him? Not just him, anybody. This is the kind of talks they have. Uh, because they can figure out the same things we can. They know. Everybody knows. He's the last year of his contract. Uh, now, if... I, I would think Rafael doesn't feel great pressure. I got to do it. I got to do it now. Then again, I, you could say that. But last year, they decided, well, we got to play our young guys. John Wall's not playing at all. Do they make a similar decision with Christian Wood? We got to move him because his contract, obviously, you can move as opposed to John Walls just to play the young guys. We got to play the young guys. Yeah, I could see them doing that too, but I just don't think so, he's going to give them away. Right. I I I, w- I would suspect that they're going to probably leave the draft with two picks, and I think it's going to it's probably going to be the two picks that they have. Because I think they're they're in that territory of the draft where somebody's going to fall, 
right? Somebody falls every year. Uh, I thought Shingun fell too far uh, last year, right? And uh, so, someone from that tier of the draft, right? I call it the AJ Griffin tier because I think you know he's someone I would classify as. Uh, if he if he falls, you gotta you you have to take him. You you just you have, have to, to snap him up, right? And there's like, if he falls, you gotta move up and take him. Right, right. Like, there's, 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 like, I, I like him a lot. I, I, if his medicals check out, if if you feel like yeah, he can be durable, he'll be okay. He's past all that. I like him a lot. I I, I don't think he gets to their range. Not necessarily him specifically, but like AJ Griffin, you know, Benedict Matherin, right? Like, like those kinds of players. Like, I kind of characterize them in the same tier. Maybe they're not, maybe they're not ranked in the same area, but I think those kind of players have similar ceilings. And I think if they fall to Houston, there's no incentive to move up, right? If one of those one of those players in that tier falls to Houston, there's no incentive. There's not much of an incentive to move up unless you really like one guy, uh, um, you know, in that tier ahead of the others. I'd and, be shocked if either of those guys move up that, I mean, fall that far. But, you know, you make a fair point. Yeah, but that happens. You know, there's usually one or two who slips a little bit. Uh, you know, and there's one or two surprising ones. So if one guy surprises and, whoa, he went 11th, that means somebody's going to slip a little. Uh, but I'd be really shocked if it's either of those two. Right. Let's Unless there's that. some real issues, or real concerns with Griffin's health, um, you know, with the injury time, history that he had. But, uh, yeah, I like those guys a lot. Uh, boy, if you get either of those at 17... You know, I, I, I liked, I put Terry Eason in my mock draft at 16, which means he very well could be there at 17. I really like, I think he's, he's not only very inter, you know, interesting player with his skills and strengths and physicality. Um, that's real good, but he was a pleasure to talk to. And, and that's what really matters is who's a good interview. So you know, that would be cool if he fell to 17. And plus, you know, you can, I'll get a story out of, the Seattleness of taking Ben Caro and Eason by the Seattle GM, uh, so uh, that would be good. So uh, just think maybe Tari Eason is the guy who slips a little. Yeah. So this tier that I have AJ Griffin in, it is one, two, three, four, five. It's nine names I have in, the, in that same tier, right? So obviously I have I have uh, AJ at the higher end of that tier. I, I don't want to reveal the whole thing because I'm, I'm writing about it, right? I, I don't want to give it up. So, um, but. I think I suspect that one, you know, some of those players are going to fall, and if if Houston believes if Houston has a similar t- like you know if they on their big board they have a similar tier right of players that have that of that length right I, I I'd imagine one of those guys falls to them so like Jeremy Sochan or Dyson Daniels right like those are guys I think you know one of one of these four names or you know one of these nine names rather is going to slip to Houston and if they slip. Um, th- th- it's a really good position to be in. Like, it's really incredible that th- they ended up with this pick at Brooklyn. Like, I-, I did not imagine they would be this bad before the season. And obviously, we know why they were this bad. But it- it's still incredible that it ha- happened this early. Like, this was not supposed to be one of the good Brooklyn picks. And it's going to be one of the good Brooklyn picks. Well, and that's sort of the argument for what they did, was give us as many picks without protection as possible as opposed to player assets in that you never know, you know, they, they got the Milwaukee pick thinking, Hey, you never know if Kevin Durant wore size 17 said 18 shoe, 
Milwaukee loses in the second round instead of winning a championship. Does eventually Giannis Antetokounmpo move on and they slip? Well, that's not going to happen. You got the Miami pick. Well, Miami actually went the other way and got really good. But you just take as many swings as possible and hope to get lucky. Well, they didn't get super lucky, but they got lucky this year with that pick. They could have got super lucky if somehow they didn't get in the playoffs in the play-in, and then who knows what happened to the lottery. Chances were minuscule of moving up from not getting in. But in other words, you're right. It, that's why they went with a bunch of picks. And if any of the guys you mentioned slips all the way to 17, wow, that really worked out because I, I don't think any of those four will. And I think any of them would be a, a real – I don't want to say steal because that's uh, I, it's too unpredictable for that. But they, it would be a happy occasion in the Rockets' front office if any of those four slipped. Yeah, I mean, it, it would be. I mean, here's the thing: like, I I think I think they're likely to get a pretty good player here. I I think they're they're in that range of the draft where like if if a couple of teams waver off of what the consensus is, right? They, they're gonna get they're gonna get somebody that's a lottery caliber talent. Right, like that—that that, that's just inevitably going to happen. All you need is two or three teams to to take someone that's you know not lottery caliber talent on your board, and you're going to get a lottery caliber talent. That that's that's the range of the draft you're in. At the same time, the Rockets have also taken lots of picks players in this range in the past, right, uh, and uh, have not been so successful. Uh, Markeith Morris, right, or uh, what's my guy's name? Uh, couldn't fly with the couldn't fly with the team. Patrick Patterson. No, not Patrick Patterson. Royce White. Oh, Royce White. Right, right. Oh, you said yeah. wouldn't fly with the team. I didn't get that. Right. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, he flew to Summer League. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that was a different one. That was kind of interesting where you took the guy with the enormous upside for where you were taking him. But, uh, you know, obviously with the risk that went with it. Um, that would be something that you can imagine them doing now is just gamble on and, upside. But that was also a year with three first-round picks. So, yeah, at least one of them take the giant upside guy. You know, you took a solid guy, you ended up trading him in the James Harden deal, and then you took another solid guy, Terrence Jones, with the other pick. So why not take the giant upside guy? I tend to think if there was a Royce White in this draft, I think that would be a, appealing, or even if it was for different reasons where it was very especially unpredictable, but with upside, that would be a Rafael thing to do. I mean, that's what I think you should do, honestly. Like, I think after you get past the sure, not the sure things, none of these guys are sure things, as we talked about earlier. After you get past the reasonable all-star ceiling guys, right, I think you have to swing for the fences. I think that's like that range of the draft where like there are those, the guys still have all-star ceilings, but they're significantly less likely to reach those ceilings. I'm still swinging for it, right? And I think in this range, if you're Houston and you're deciding between a good role player, like a, a guy you know, this guy for sure will be able to play for us, or some guy, somebody like Jalen Hardy, right? Who, you know, Jalen Hardy, disappointing year with the with uh, the Ignite, but we know th- we know his upside, right? He was like the second ranked recruit going into co- college last year, right? And then he decided to go with the Ignite, and he had an obviously disappointing season. I still might take that swing, right? Because you're 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 the worst team in basketball. Like taking these swings and 
you know, there's no guarantee that these top picks that you're, you're picking are going to work out and become all-stars. I think I, I'm reasonably optimistic that Jalen Green will, but there's no guarantee that Shingun will or that Paolo Banquero will, right? Like taking as many swings at star ceiling talents is I think what you should be doing if you're Houston. So that's what I would do in this range of there. What, what approach do you think they're going to take? Is Have you heard any names that they're interested in at 17? I haven't. No. Um, maybe it's too soon or no, I haven't yet, but I haven't really chased after that yet because it is so soon It's changing all the time. And it's so unpredictable at 17, at least at this stage. Uh, so it, it's, and we're going to really soon get to the everyone's lying stage of the draft where you, normally this kind of stuff comes up, comes through agents. But if there was ever a time, eh, don't take an agent's word for it. It's before the draft. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. It's, it's the time of the year uh, where everybody has an incentive to lie. And I think it's no different this year uh, as opposed to other years. Right. Um, so, Coach Hornacek, Coach Dieppe, and Coach Weaver, who I really like, by the way, and I think he's going to be a really smart head coach one day. But all three of these uh, assistant coaches have now left Steven Salas' staff to go elsewhere. I think um, the the logical step here is that Houston will promote friend of the show, Mehmood Abdul-Fatah, but we haven't gotten any sort of confirmation on that. They also have to fill in two other seats on the bench. Uh, how does this play out for Houston, in your opinion? Are they going to exclusively promote from within? Will they scour the league? We know they've had great luck overseas with coaches. Is that an option? Like, how does Houston plan to fill these vacancies now? Um, well, I think they're going to definitely try and add a guy who has like some defensive coaching chops, like some history. That's not necessarily running the defense, but a creative mind. You know, a lot to offer. Uh, uh, as a guy who will help work with the defense. Uh, in other words, I don't think it's quite the Jeff Fizdelic, you're the defensive coordinator, although they didn't call him that, but you run the show on the defense. It's not that, but that's where they go with the main one. Uh, and then, you know, I think it's, Stephen is extremely well-liked and respected around the league. He's got a ton of connections. Uh, he People will, like to work with him. Um, there is a lot of uncertainty when you're joining a team that's had the worst record in the league twice in a row. And the coach has two years on his contract, only one fully guaranteed. So you, they have to, coaches have to consider that, but he's got connections like crazy and he's really well liked and thought really highly thought of. Um, but that's the one thing I've heard from, uh, people outside the organization, but that's around, yeah, he's looking for a defensive, I don't want to say specialist, but um, really strong defensive coach. Yeah, I think they're going to, I think they're going to scour the league. I think, I think more likely you're going to see uh, a promotion and I hope it's uh, coach Abdul Fattah. I'm, I'm a big fan. Well, him, oh, you said that off the beginning and yeah, I absolutely think he'll be one of the three. Also, is Houston making any more front office additions around Rafael Stone, or are they done, you think? Because I am now suddenly very very curious about what happens with Sachin Gupta in Minnesota after this Tim Conley hire, and I can't find any good reporting as to what the team's plans are for him. And we know the Rockets attempted to uh, uh, 
I don't want to say poach, but hire and promote, right? Uh, Gupta in their front office, right? And uh, and that got blocked, obviously. So, like, what what do you think Houston is 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 this the front office that's going to be there uh, for the foreseeable future? Do you see them making any more additions? Because I, I I am interested to see if they try and uh, add add any more uh, depth, uh, depth around. Well, if he be- uh, if he became unemployed, yeah, I think they'd love to have him around. Uh, they have a really that's good relationship. Yeah. But I don't think he's looking for more staff after, you know, adding so many last last year. Um, not that it's a big staff. It's not. It's smaller. But it, it's kind of the Daryl thing of, you know, Daryl said, you know, if there was a guy out there and we just really wanted him, I'd hire him. I, I don't need to have a position open. Well, I think that's kind of how Rafael feels as well, that uh, – it's not like I'm just going to collect them all as if it's tug of war and <laughs> the more guys you have in your front office. But uh, he, he, Gupta would be, they're, they're close. They're, he and, and Rafael get along really well. He and Eli are really tight. Um, and uh, so, and you know, he's a highly respected guy around the league. But I, I, I tend to think they're going to keep him in Minnesota. And I don't think he's yeah. a guy, I can't work for the guy who got the job I wanted. I don't think that's his career arc to where, you know, it's hard to be passed over for the job and then take the assistant job. In his case, I think, and considering Connolly's track record, I think that can work. Yeah, and the Rockets have a lot of. I mean, their their front office fraternity is kind of is pretty underrated. Like they're they've had a lot of guys go to other teams, become head decision makers, and those guys obviously have a lot of connections. And so, if they do want to to hire someone new, that that would not they would not have any trouble finding someone. Perhaps even someone they've had uh, had in their front office before. So it's interesting. Just something I wanted to ask about because. Obviously, they made two hires last year uh, in Matt and uh, and Chris, but it is uh, it is something that I you saw you heard a lot of reporting about how they wanted to surround Rafael with uh, more front office experience. It got you know a good mix of they got the former players and Chuck Hayes and and Pinkney and uh, they, they you know Eli is kind of the uh, I don't know if this is the right terminology but second in command. You know they, they they have a pretty it's new it, so it's obviously going to be a pretty complete group because they just hired these guys. That's pretty much all I have. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, I I I really appreciate when you come on the podcast and do this for the, for us. It it you know I know it's a huge time commitment for you, but it does help the listeners of the podcast get more informed. Uh, I know you, you're doing a double header, so I appreciate that as well. That's my pleasure. Uh, always good talking basketball. For sure. Uh, so I, I plugged some stuff at the top of the podcast. Do you have anything else you want to, you'd like to plug? Well, I don't have a story that's like in the hot. Well, I do, but it's not a basketball story. But, uh, you know, all our stuff, and thank you for saying that, um, obviously, all at HoustonChronicle.com. And uh, so it all goes there. And I tweet the link. And even if I forget to tweet the link, there's the automated tweet that pops up. Um, with links to everything that we do and I try to do a lot of our staffers and you can click on those too Uh, Jonathan underscore Fagan is my Twitter handle thank you for bringing that up